welcome to the Stanley Street Social Podcast presented by the TAC, The Road Belongs to Us All, supporting that important message that we all do our bit, including cyclists, to make sure that we get to our destination in a safe manner. Today on the podcast, we've got a new series that I touch on in the opening comments of this episode is around, I want to start to record the amazing cycling legends stories that we have in our own backyard, starting off today with Graham Gilmore. He has done it so much within cycling, which we, you'll start to get a, a grip of. And the podcast is two hours long, It is, an, but it is spectacular. I was sitting on the couch in awe as Graham went through his story of how, how he got to Europe, um, the racing, the six-day, getting into the six-day scene. And I guess his most famous and most popular question is when he was racing six days with Eddie Merckx, what was it like? He got to the top, top, top of the sport uh, in amazing conditions. So it's it's worth the wait. If you, if you have got the time to get through the episode, I uh, had a really good time recording it and I hope you enjoy it too. If you do enjoy, the, enjoy this and would like to hear more of these episodes, please let me know. Uh, because I'm keen to hear your thoughts and I hope that this can turn into um, more than just a one episode and can turn into a series. Before we get started, big thanks to our, our apparel partner, Map2. If you haven't seen it yet, they've released their Pro Bib 2.0. These are their top-of-the-line Nicks, which they've redesigned, not just in a, a small update. They've completely redesigned the bib short with a new 3D aero structure delivering new standards in compression that enhances blood flow and recovery. They are elite nicks. If you want to check that out, head to map.cc. We've also launched a competition on our Instagram channel to win two tickets to the Alpine Classic on Australia Day weekend 2022. Thanks to our friends at the Ride High Country. They've given these tickets based off their thought that you are not a real rider until you really get out into the mountains and the amazing terrain that that region has to offer. If you would like to enter this competition, head to our Instagram page. Um, you'll find the photo there. All you have to do is tag your riding mate in the photo and follow us on Instagram for your chance to win the two tickets. A big thank you to all our partners and for Graham for finding time to record this episode. So, um, I follow the D's. And, <laughs> on, and, and not, just, not just this year. Like for, last yeah. twen- for the last 28 years, it's been a... <coughs> been a long time coming and so we do this podcast with um max gorn and campbell flatmore a guy that i used to ride with and we just talk about cycling and yada 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 anyway max um there was one day that he was talking about uh he had like a a club day or something where they get all the old um people from past teams oh, legends right. of the club they get them yeah, all well. back together and it's kind of like they do it every year it's kind of uh, keep the history and keep um, all that, yeah, that that cool cool stories that they have and the people and the success. And I was like, oh, that's, a, that's a cool thing to do. And they do it especially as part of when the new people come to the club to keep things moving. And I was like, well, there, there's so much cycling history in Australia, but it's not really recorded anywhere. Like no, no. one... No. You You're go, spot on. You, you go to a club now and it's not like uh, when you sign up to the Launceston Cycling Club, you you hear about the Gilmores and uh, the legends of the sport. And when you do a little bit of research, they're just there's cycling legends just everywhere, just around and about. They are. 
So it, that's that's like as an example now with the with the young riders from the institutes like the Tasmanian Institute of Sport, um, where in some cases I've been sort of a mentor or assisted with some coaching or whatever. And you talk about uh, Eddie Merckx, and they they wouldn't have a clue who Eddie Merckx was. Yeah. And you just think that's that's mind boggling. Yeah. So they would never ever know about a say Sid Patterson or a Barry Waddell or or John Green, John Young, like just yeah. heaps of champions. Yeah. And I I don't either. Like <laughs> like there there is so much that that I've got to learn. I think. Which, which is what is exciting about the this kind of series that I'm hoping to embark on is oh, just right. to go back and just to work through all these magical years of cycling yes. when yeah. um, when Graham Gilmore was winning down in York Park. Like the idea of that is just so <laughs> that's cool. That's a long time ago. It's just so cool. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that's where we're at. Thanks for joining yeah. us, Graham Gilmore. It's oh, good to have you on good, the Alex. Yep. When, um, like when, when you started cycling, like what – what was going on? How did how did you how did you first? Well, my uh, so the heritage of our family, the Gilmores, is uh, I think with Zach now it's six generations because I my great uh, grandfather was James and he raced in the period around the 1915, 1918, and his career was in, interrupted by the First World War. Uh, his son, old Albert Ernest, who was my grandfather, then he raced in the 20s, 30s, and um, then my father started racing about 16, because he was born in 1925, and then both my grandfather and my father went to the Second World War together. My grandfather put his age up, and my, uh, no, my father put his age up, my grandfather put his age down, and they both went in the Air Force. So their careers were interrupted by the Second World War. So then myself and Ken come along, so we were the fourth generation. Then Matthew and Luke, the fifth generation, now we've got Zach. And the other two grandsons are just starting as well, Gus, uh, Gus Chalice and Nick, Nick Ablett. Wow. So... There was a real depth, so like uh, you could say, like said, just sitting round the kitchen table having a meal, you know, cycling was always there even at a really young age. And uh, both, well, I started racing in, in 1955 when I was 10 and I raced till 1978, so it was a long a long career. So when, like, when you started racing, like you, you were, you were heavily involved in the sport. I guess at that time, like you, don't you did. You, can you remember your dad racing? Can you remember him telling stories about the sport and what was going on in his career? Yeah, I can. I can. I never ever saw him race um, because he came back from the war and then he raced for a couple of years, and I would have only been about three or four. But then he talked uh, quite often about the racing that they had and where they raced from. Uh, and one of the places where they raced from then was where the King's Meadows Hotel is now, and that wasn't there then. And that was all bush and goss and the whole lot, and they'd ride straight out the road 
to towards Evandale and then come back and finish back there. And when you now when you go and drive out there and you think <laughs> back years ago that was a popular um, yeah racing like for the for the road. And then he naturally raced on the track here in in the old um, the old the old track there at York Park. Yeah. But he, uh, yeah, they were. He he said then that there was a multitude of bike riders. There was a lot of bike riders, and they all raced. Uh, you see now, there's a lot of bike riders, but not many race. Mm. Um, and they there was a real camaraderie. Apparently then too, uh, my father said, where, you know, they helped one another and they travelled together and all this sort of business where now it's just, you know, more, more of an individual type thing, yeah. I would suggest, yeah. 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 And was, so when you started at 10, was, where did cycling sit in kind of like the popularity of sport? Oh, it was un- unbelievable. There was... See, years ago, there was two distinct um, classes. There was professionals, and then there was the amateurs. And the amateurs, uh, they were the only ones that could go to the Olympics, so professionals couldn't go to the Olympics then. It wasn't until after, I think, Los Angeles, where they combined the pros and ams together. So because of the professionals, the professional class then had all the major races... You know, they had Latrobe, Wheel Race, Burnie, Devonport, um, Melbourne to Warnable Road Race. All, all the classics were pro races. And the amateurs uh, raced more, uh, well, what we really termed then Olympic events, you know, like a 1,000-metre time trial, mm-hmm. a pursuit. Um, and their structure was a lot different to the professionals because... And it was funny in that era as well, even I can remember back when I was 10 and you got, if you won or got first, second or third, you got a voucher and it might have been in those days a pound or whatever. So that voucher that you had, um, you couldn't spend it on anything except cycling gear. So you could go to the bike shops then like, Kevin McBain cycles, Canaan cycles, then you'd hand over the voucher and you could buy your toe straps or your mm. clips or you could combine them all together and buy, you know, a jersey, a racing jersey. Um, but there was times when the vouchers could be, uh, which were cashed in. But if the Amateur Federation found out that you had cashed a voucher in... <laughs> <laughs> you relinquished your amateur status and you were immediately a professional. It was very, there was very, it was very cut and dried. Now, the professional class then, you know, the likes of, well, there was the Pickets. There was a really famous family here in Tasmania that raced. The Sloans, Max Sloan, um, Len Jamison, really champion bike riders. And they raced on all those major events, like down the northwest coast. And I can re- recall when I was 10 or 11, we would catch the train. We would catch the train out at Invermay, and they had special trains that took you to the bike races down the northwest coast as a spectator. 
So you jump aboard the train and off you'd go to La Trobe and um, watch the bike race, catch the train and go back home. And then they had buses. Um, at times down the coast then, you know, like it was nothing to have 10, 15, 20,000 people go and see the bike race. I know times, you know, times have changed and there's more to do and all that sort of thing, but uh, because of the status of cycling then with these old champions that were renowned and got really famous in the fact of publicity and, um, you know, they were, a lot, they were idolised, like Max Sloan and those riders, they were, they were idolised. Mm. And when we went, I remember in um, going to La Trobe, uh, and it would have been 1956, probably stand corrected, but 1956, and there was a champion bike rider come across from Melbourne, then Russell Mockridge, who was an unbelievable bike rider that unfortunately got killed in a road race in Melbourne. And he had glasses, Mockridge, and Mockridge and Max Sloan, the Tasmanian champion, they made the final of the Latrobe wheel race and it started to rain and Mockridge couldn't really see too well. <laughs> with the glasses so he sacrificed his chance for Max Sloan to get up and win the Latrobe wheel race which for a bike rider in those days without overstating it for a bike rider to win Latrobe would be like winning the Melbourne Cup it was just you know virtually a pinnacle of of yeah. of a career or cycling a pinnacle yeah so like um when you were growing up, like where did football and cricket and the other kind of what we now see as mainstream sports sit compared to cycling? Um, well, football was football was there, but I'd suggest in those days back back then, sort of in the early sixties and that, I would have said that cycling was the in effect the number one sport uh, because it went twelve months of the year. You had the track season, you had the road season, where footy, even though it was extremely popular with a lot of champions that come over and played in Tassie, they were they just had that isolated one season, then it was cricket. Yeah. And it took a while, in effect, really, for cricket to gain momentum in uh, Tassie, and that was when, I think it was an Englishman, Simon Simmons, he came out and coached. Tasmania and played for Tasmania and they won the Sheffield Shield one year. And that sort of cricket then really took off with the likes of Tony Bennyworth and some really good cricketers. But the footballers, uh, they were the days, not like, say, Melbourne now and Collingwood that play million-dollar contracts to players. You know, maybe they got, I don't know, £10 a week and a jumper to play. <laughs> Whereas if uh, in Tasmania, some of the clubs like Longford, North Launceston, Scottsdale, they play, paid some of those players to come. So it was well worthwhile for a lot of really good Victorian footballers to come and play in Tassie. Mm. So that, that sort of elevated their sport. So I think when people see that there's a real class there and there's a lot of competition, I think that draws more attention. So then the crowds build, then the, the sportsmen lift, 
and then the sports just grow. Yeah. And it, it, it did for years, did for years. Who was like organising and driving and because like, yeah, yeah, exactly what you said. But then there's, there's normally like a body or like the AFL now that's pulling it all together. together. Who, was, who was that? Well, <coughs> there was two distinct uh, classes, like I say, amateurs and professionals. So there was an Australian amateur um, affiliation and then there was the professional Australian affiliation. And out of, out of those, it was just like a cascade that come down to what we called the League of Tasmanian Women were the, amateur, uh, were the professionals and the TAC, the Tasmanian Amateur Cycling, were the amateurs. So that was how the structure flowed. And then it flowed into clubs. So as an example, here in Launceston, we had the Ramblers Club, and that was professional, and then you had the LACC, which was the Launceston Amateur Cycling Club. So they were two distinct, but the structures were really strong, and they had people there like the president, treasurer, secretaries, that were some ex-bike riders, some business people, but they had a real passion for the sport. So they promoted as much as they could. Like we had in Tasmania 32 open-air tracks at one stage, 32. And there was a carnival, nearly every one of them. And my, when I first, well, I turned pro at 15, um, and that was a little bit of a controversy between amateurs and professionals, because when, we, when I first started... They had what they called a novices, so you could just line up and have a ride. Uh, but if you won a race, then you had to register. So my first, the first race I rode, my brother beat me, Ken. Um, he's 18 months older than me, so he was a bit stronger. Uh, then I won my second race, so we immediately then went into the amateurs. So we were in the Launceston Amateur Cycling Club as... Schoolboys, they called them. And um, you could, at that stage then, what they called relinquish your status. So even though when I was 15, I was a, uh, what they called an A-grade juvenile, and they had the Tasmanian Amateur Cycling Championships down in Hobart at Newtown Track, and... The Australian Championships were to be in Perth in Western Australia. So here we are talking like 1960. So to go to Perth, like a Tasmanian, you know, like, ooh, that's going to be fantastic. So my father, uh, who was then my coach, Jack, he said to me, uh, I reckon if you relinquish your status... So as a juvenile and step up to the under-18 juniors, I think you can win one of these championships and uh, probably get a trip with the state team to Western Australia. So, you know, he's my father, sure, took notice of him. So <laughs> went to Hobart and they had three events. They had a 500-metre time trial, they had a sprint and a five-mile scratch, uh, five scratch race. And I won the three of them, beat all the under-18s. And then after the championships at Newtown, 
all the uh, officials and the selectors had a meeting to select the team to go to Western Australia. And for whatever reason, they made a decision to say, um, we're not sending any juniors to Western Australia uh, because, you know, Graham Gilmore won the three and he's only 15, so the under-18s aren't good enough to go. So I didn't get a Guernsey anyway, either. So my dad got a bit sort of robbed with that because he was a little bit the instigator of me relinquishing status to right, right under 18 so I could go there. And he said, well, I'll tell you how... If you think he's too young to go there, I'll tell you how young he is. He's pretty hot-headed, Dad. <laughs> <laughs> he said... <laughs> he said, I'll, I'll tell you uh, if you think he's, he's not good enough or under 18, he's going to turn professional. So I turned professional when I was 15. <laughs> So the next year, um, racing down the northwest coast against all the all the all the big the big champions and of the day. Did you get to go to Perth? No, no, they wouldn't send because they said I was too young, and the other the other riders in the under eighteen competition because a fifteen year old beat them, they deemed them not good enough to go to the Australian Championships. Yeah, wow. So what, like, how did they define the classes? How did they define um, the amateurs and professionals? Um, well, when, by, when, excuse me, initially when somebody wanted to be a bike rider, they didn't really, they all started young in those days. You know, we all had bikes and we rode to school. So you read every day in the paper there was a write-up about cycling. And, you know, there's York Park out there, the, the bike track out there, and then there's Longford, and then there's Westbury and Exeter and blah, blah. There was always something. So by starting young, they all went, in effect, to the amateur class because you had to learn. Like, you couldn't turn around and just jump straight into the professionals. Like, you know, they'd eat you alive. You, you needed you need to learn the basics. So that's the, that was the structure. Then, they, then you get to a certain age or a certain level of ability and you say, all those good races that they've got, you know, and they're making good money. Well, maybe, you know, I can be, I can be there. So that gave you the, the impetus really to turn professional because there was money. There was money to be made. And there was really good money really good money in, in Australia then. So then I, I turned pro, then 15. Um, then there was the road race. You were the youngest pro going oh, around? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Then they had, in the, win in the winter, they had the Tasmanian Junior and Senior Road Championships, professional, because they had junior pros then too, under 18 junior pros. And... Uh, I won the Tasmanian Pro Junior and I ran, then I ran second in the Australian Junior Pro Road Championship in Victoria to, uh, what was his name from New South Wales, Warren Lord. Even right back then, I can remember running second then and I'd just under, just nearly 16. Mm. Like, how many people are they getting to these races? 
Like what? What in, in uh, Tassie and then nationally? Oh, on the on the track, like the the big carnivals on the track, um, down the northwest coast, at least ten, fifteen thousand, twenty thousand people. Is, is that, that was un- that unbelievable? As a fifteen, sixteen year old going down to the coast and just racing in front of a uh, genuine crowds, where yeah. it'd be hard to find that anywhere in twenty twenty one. No, well, as I say. Tr- they used to put on special trains out of Launceston to take you down there. That's cool. And when, when uh, the first couple of years, uh, like at La Trobe, um, they had 150 professionals racing, 150 pros. And they, they come from everywhere, uh, internationals, uh, uh, it was unreal how they encouraged so many, so much, um, like spectators and um, and the way the press built it up too. You know, they built rivalries like Max Sloan against Sid Patterson and and all this sort of business. You know, and and then when I really started to gain momentum, then I was racing Pato and John Green and Young and Grinder and all these. You know, oh, can this little midget you know, this little snot nose, can he take on the champions? You know, that's how, yeah, that, in effect, that's how it was built. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, wow. Yeah. When um, your dad said to you, no, you're not, you're out of the novices, you're going to the amateurs, and then all of a sudden you're in the pro ranks. Like, were you just, what, what were you feeling like at that time? Were you just taking it all in and going, yeah, he knows what's going on, I'm doing as I'm told? Oh yeah, my word! And the other, the other is, I think, you know, your eyes dazzle a bit, <laughs> you know, with the glitter. Yeah. That you think, well, I can beat, I can beat these blokes, you know, like with the amateurs. Uh, when I went down there with the under 18s the first time in the Tassie Car- uh, the Tasmanian Championships, I didn't go down there to think that I was going to get be beaten. I, <laughs> I didn't think that at all. I went down there and I thought, well, I'm going to win. You know, because Dad had said, I reckon you can win one. So that, in effect, that gave you the confidence. Plus the fact, when you're training, and you, we were going out to York Park out then, uh, when the track was out there, we, we were riding against training with the seniors. So you always had that bit of stretch, that bit of incentive and the more you, you know, the more you trained and the more you got competitive to them, you could see, well, you know, that's giving me more encouragement now to try and take the next step. Mm. And when I went to race down the, down the coast, you know, the first, first few years, I can honestly say I was never overawed. I just, just said, well, you know, you can only do your best and if your best is good enough, maybe you're going to win. Yeah. And it's, it's attitude. Yeah. And, I, you know, I, I don't say that in the, in the fact of, um, you know, sort of bragging or a big head or whatever, but I just believe a lot it's attitude. If you train and you can see you can do it, well, why can't you? Mm. You know, you've got to be a racer. <laughs> yeah. What what did uh what did the training sessions look like? Uh well for 
or a try and and like the sessions within the the bigger picture of the week and racing and how did it all fit together? Well, the only the only day that we didn't ride was Friday because normally on the Saturday there was a big carnival. No, I'm talking track season. Mm. There was a big carnival. We you raced Tuesday, Thursday nights at York Park, and there'd be two three thousand people there, and that's club races like the Ramblers and the amateurs race together there. Um, and then, so that was the Tuesday, Thursday night races. Uh, Friday was a bit of a rest day because you normally had one of the bigger carnivals on the Saturday, whether that was Scottsdale, Franklin, uh, Devonport, wherever, Exeter, blah, blah. One of the 32 tracks. One of the, In one of the 32 tracks, yeah. So, and then, uh, so the... the Tuesday you raced, Thursday you raced, Saturday you had the big carnival. Then you could race club races at Longford on the Sunday if you wanted. Again on the track or road? Again on the track, so four times a week. So that's why there was such a skill with all the bike riders because you raced so much. On the Monday, um, that was – if you didn't race the Sunday, on the Monday you'd, you would do a longer, longer ride. And by, what I mean by a longer ride, that would be, say, from Launceston out to Poatina and back. And that was at sort of dusk, night time. So my dad, he, he, said, he said a couple of times, he said, I wore, I wore out three cars following you. <laughs> so there was, in our training group, there would have been eight or nine riders. So dad used to follow with the lights on, follow us out there and back then we'd race the tuesday on the uh the the wednesday this was a this was an important fact over the years on the wednesday dad used to take uh the training group about the eight odd riders and well in different cars uh down to lagoon bay at down at georgetown Mm. there's a little lagoon bay very shallow and we'd walk out into the water waist deep and run in the water so you'd run 50 odd meters up one way and then you'd stop turn round and then run 50 odd meters back you'd do that for half an hour and that was that was strength training like in those days there wasn't any really science amongst it but i think my father was a bit ahead of his time because he looked at strength training was one and the other was interval training so you know, sprint, slacken off, sprint, slacken off, sprint. Um, so you really built, built like your heart, lungs, anaerobic threshold, you know, and it all worked. Yeah. It all worked. And earlier in the year, um, prior to sort of the season starting, well, that's when we do a lot of road miles. You know, like Scottsdale and back, and all this sort of stuff, and and in the road season on the Sundays, definitely on the Sundays, we would always ride in excess of a hundred mile on the on the Sunday after the race on the Saturday, on just a, to give you the miles on a fixed gear, on the fixed gear in the track track season all the time, no breaks. But on on no, the, there on wasn't the road, any traffic. <laughs> on on the road bike, we we did have gears on the bike at that time. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But limited. Uh, 
the normal range was 47 inside chainring, 50 outside chainring, and you had a five block on the back, like 13, 14, 15, 16. <laughs> 16. And, 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 now you're, and you're going around Scottsdale on that. <laughs> yeah, my word. My word. One of the... Uh, one of the... <laughs> The absolute um, training specials that, again, my father had Wednesday night in the road season was we they lived in Bennett Street and lived there for years, and we'd start in Bennett Street, and uh, we'd ride down Punchbowl, through the Punchbowl, down the bottom, turn, go up up over Queechy Hill, come back round come back into Franklin Street, up Franklin Street, up right round here, back down, uh, along uh, Margaret Street, um, Riata Road, go up right out right through Trevallon, back down into the city, uh, up Balfour Street, across the top, down Abbott Street, turn into Elfin Road, back up uh, David Street, and For those that aren't Launceston residents, um, Graham's just listed off the steepest roads in Launceston, <laughs> like all of them, <laughs> all in, of one, them. In, one, in one loop. In one loop. Well, we would do two, two of those loops in, in that, on that Wednesday night. Again, that's strength training. That was the strength, strength training. Like David Street, that would uh, be steeper than Franklin probably, which is 22 22 degrees, yeah. so David Street's a bit steeper than that, not as long, and Balfour Street certainly is certainly is that. So you try going up there with a uh, 47.16. So, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, but that's how, in effect, that's how it was, yeah. Mm. Yeah, that's cool. So mm. were you at school at this time? Were you at school when you were starting to turn pro, starting to get these results? I was. Uh, I was Glendrew Primary School, then I went to Launceston Tech College and the last the last year of school was when Queechy High School started in Launceston. So part of our lessons were in town at Launceston Tech College and then out at Queechy. Yeah. And so we what like what were you thinking around sport and how that works with your career and what else like were there cyclists like professional cyclists that's all they did uh there was three or four that's all they did and that was the likes of the sid patterson's that in melbourne yeah um here in tassie no everyone in effect had a job but um for me personally even as i say a snot nose 15 16 I was going. I was going to Europe. <laughs> I wasn't. I wasn't thinking too much about anything else. I was going to be a professional bike rider, and I used to get the uh, all the international magazines like Miroir de Cyclisme, and you'd pour over that like Fosto Copy and Rick Van Steenbergen and Onkatil and all these writers that you'd say, "Yep, one day I want to do that." Um, when I left school. Um, I my first job was at the ACL Bear, uh, I think it was called Repco then ACL Bearing Company, and uh, I had this 
bit of a vision that I wanted to be a mechanical draftsman because I was pretty good at school at drafting and blah, blah. And uh, so they were offering apprenticeships then to do that. But when I went there, they said, oh, well, you've got to start at the bottom. So I, uh, they gave me a machine with sort of two handles with these two cutters on it, and there was a way you did it uh, to put the oil groove in car bearings. So they, ha- they had this big tray next to the machine, so you just take one out and bang. So to me, again, it was like a bit of a competition. You know, I'm going to do this. I'll, I'll <laughs> do that today. So you'd rip through it and you'd think, oh, well, you know, like I was naive. You rip through it and, and then they'd put another bloody bin there. <laughs> so I, I got a bit jack of that. Um, so I then uh, I got a job in the bank uh, with Max Sloan, the, you know, the big champion, and Len Jamison. And it was called the Launceston Bank for Savings. Uh, so I worked in the bank, um, and then I was called up uh, in the first intake for the Vietnam War, or when Vietnam was on. So then I went into the army for two years, a bit over two years. Because you had to. You, you had was, to. Yeah. Yeah, it was compulsory con- conscription. So, what, and what it was, it was like a lottery. Uh, if you're, they spun a, spun a wheel with all the numbers in it, and if you, your number come out, <laughs> just like Tats Lotto, on that day, like I was born 29th of June 1945, the, the marble come out 29th of June, and that meant I would go into the army. If it was the 28th, no. Nah. Or the fifteenth wow. of June, and you didn't mar- marble didn't come out. You didn't have to go. So, anyway, I I went into the army for two and a half years. Fortunate in one regard that I didn't go to Vietnam. Um, but when you're doing the training, and when you're in the army and you've got all your mates, there is a a bit of a thing. Yeah, well, oh, you know, I want to stand by my mate and go. But when uh, when I got out of the army. I stayed in Melbourne and lived in Melbourne. And oh, okay, raced, so you had to move. You couldn't the, couldn't do the army um, training here. Oh no, no, no! I went to Puckapunyal first in Victoria, then I went to the Ingleburn Infantry Centre, and then I went to Canungra Jungle Training Centre, and went back to Ingleburn Infantry Centre. Then the last part of my service, I served in Melbourne in an army records. But prior to, prior to going into the army, um, when I was just turned 17, I ran, I ran fourth in La Trobe wheel race to Sid Patterson. Uh, and I ran third in Burnie to Sid Patterson. And then the following year, I won La Trobe and then I won... Bernie in the same same Christmas and then unfortunately in some regards I was caught called up in the army and went in the army so I missed those couple of years so when I got out of the army I'd always had this and yeah just like when you got um went to the army you had to stop riding you couldn't 
I did it yeah. for about the first 18 months, couldn't even touch a bike because of all the training. But when I got back to Melbourne, then um, I could live off the base. I didn't have to be, you know, in the army, army base. So I then lived with um, an ex Weller bike rider that he used to race against, John Young, um, who... Oh, just sort of talking a bit in circles, but prior to the army, my first six-day race that I rode, I raced with John Young out at York Park when I was 18, and uh, we finished second, actually, beaten by 20, about 20 points by Waddell and Ian Chapman. So that was the first six-day race that I rode of the 127 I ended up riding. And there were six days at York Park. My word. And there was a morning session. And you started at nine o'clock in the morning and you rode till midday. And then there was an hour break. And then there was an afternoon session from one till five. And then uh, you had a break. And then it went from seven o'clock till midnight at York Park. That's cool. Oh, it was unbelievable. That's cool. That if... Anyone ever talks about the golden age of cycling, that, that was it. That was it. That was un, absolutely unbelievable. People would come to the afternoon session and they'd say at five o'clock, you've got to clear the ground, and they'd walk out and line up straight away to come back in for the night session. So there'd be a line up in Invermay Road. That yeah. was... Un- unbelievable. I, I, I'm still also trying to wrap my head around the fact that you uh, had to do this army training and that you had no choice at all, especially at where you were in your career. How, like, how, how do they tell you? And, like, were you distraught when you found out? Um, what did I really think then? Like, they, what, send you a yeah. letter or do they... Yeah, well... I'd really started to make inroads even at 17, 18 in the pro ranks and winning really big bike races, you know, and a nice, decent money too. And, uh, yeah, then you think, you know, like what's going to happen in this next two years, particularly when there's a war on. So the war started? Oh, yeah, Vietnam War was well and truly on. And so you got, you got a letter to say, one, you have to go to the army, no... No questions asked. No questions asked. And two, there's a chance you're going to go to Vietnam. Oh, yeah, crockies. <laughs> the first intake, virtually, a, a majority or a lot of them went to Vietnam in the first intake. <sighs> That's crazy. There was, no, crazy. there was no, oh, I'm not going to go. Yeah. You, 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 had, you passed a medical. You had to pass a medical and then, you, then that was it. You were in the army. And no, no sporting exemptions because of what you were doing? No. 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 It, seemed, it's, it just seems so, like, such a big... Well, especially in today's world when we're talking about people that won't take two vaccinations. And you've been told at how old? 20... Uh, 19. 19, that you have to give up your entire sporting career for a couple of years and potentially go to war. Yeah, and without being dramatic... And probably dying. Yeah. Oh. The only thing they said is the job that you've got now, when you get out of the army, they've got to make, you've got to make sure that, that he's got his job back. In effect, that was... 
That was it. That was it, yeah. Yeah, you didn't have a choice. Were you distraught? I wouldn't say distraught. I, I think you end up... I'm a, a bit of a planner. <laughs> <laughs> you end up saying, oh, well, okay, I'm going to have this hiatus where I, you know, I, I won't be able to ride. Um, and like Dad, my father had been to war. Um, and the next door neighbour had been been to war, so they were having a bit of a chat to me. And you know, like when you're in the army, keep your head down. You know, don't volunteer, don't <laughs> all this. <sort> of stuff. <laughs> so the one thing the army taught me was the fact. Well, you had to be physically fit anyway. So in the space that I was in the army before I could get back on my bike, that 18 months was like cross training. You know, you were doing obstacle courses, uh, route marches, running, full pack, all this sort of business. But um, to hone in on sort of the cycling career was the fact of... Honestly, I thought, when I get out of the army, I'm going to be older and I'm going to be stronger and I'm going to Europe. So I think it's just that goal setting... You think, well, yeah. yeah, that's that's the aim. So that's what I'm, I'm sort of heading to do. Yeah, and at the time, like, what? How did you get to Europe? Like, what? <laughs> what? How did it work? Yeah, like, no you way. say I want to go race in Europe. Well, you don't just ring up a Belgium team and say, <laughs> no, you can't ring anyone. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that year, uh, 1967. 1967, oh, this sounds like a brag, brag bust, but uh, 1967, I had a real, I had a terrific year in Australia. I won uh, an Australian track champ- championship, the one mile. Uh, I won the Australian ro- professional road championship. I won the Warnable, first and fastest in the Warnable, and that was 1967. And the one before me from scratch was a bloke called Eddie Smith in 1952. So there'd been quite a gap before a scratch man had won. Um, oh, the Gippsland Tour, there was a heap of races. And then I won the Tasmanian Thousands at Devonport, a track race, with Sid Patterson second, which they said was world, the world record then of a minute and 45 seconds for a mile or something. So I had some... I was really rocking as a bike rider. Yeah, nice. Uh, won the six-day race, too, with Sid Patterson out at York Park. Um, so, again, you know, it, by that, and I was racing at the board track in what they called the board track, the velodrome in Melbourne, and there was a lot of international bike riders racing there then, a lot of Italians uh, and world-class riders, like... Oscar Plattner, who was a world sprint champion, and uh, Taruzzi and Fajin, there was heaps of them would come out and race. And, and um, in the course of racing against them, um, initially to start, probably hard to beat them, but eventually I did beat them, or could beat them. So Sid Patterson, he was a great friend of mine, a lot older, but a great friend of mine, Pato, and he used to say to me, you've got to go to Europe. If you can beat these blokes, and they're supposedly the best, you've got to go. So 
like you've just mentioned, there's no ringing up and saying, look, here I come, you know, because they couldn't give a damn <laughs> in, <laughs> in Europe. Did, did they know the results? Did they know what was going on in Australia or were you just so uh, far from... They did by the word of mouth of some of the bike riders that were here, that raced here against, say, against me and others. And then when they went back to Europe... They naturally people would ask them, oh, what's Australia like and all that, and they'd say, oh, yeah, well, he's, you know, that's a pretty good bike rider and he's this and he's that. So, <clears throat> in early 1968, I'd accumulated, um, yeah, quite a bit of cash, and uh, all from cycling. All from, all from well, yeah, because the la- when I got out of the army, that's all I did was be a bike rider. Didn't work. And there was a, yeah, there was an issue with me winning and with this reputation that a certain bureaucracy looked at and thought I hadn't been paying enough tax. (laughs) (laughs) Did you, were you supposed to pay tax on your winnings? My word. Was that traders' income? My word. So uh, to get out of it, to get out of Australia, I got I got a, a fine, and to get out of Australia, I had a one way. I had to cash in the return ticket, so I had a one way ticket to Europe um, to what, fly into Brussels. What did that cost? In those days, the the return ticket was nearly two and a half thousand dollars, and that was nineteen sixty eight. So I only had then the one-way ticket to go and I thought I had enough money which would last me six months but in what actually happened, it lasted me about three months. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, I flew into Brussels and I had a bag in one hand and a bike in the other and the only contacts I had was my uh, wife's K sister, Helen, uh, was the widow of Tom Simpson, the bike rider that mm-hmm. died in the Tour de France. So uh, we went to, went, back, went to Ghent, or they picked, Helen picked me up at the airport. And the reason why we knew Helen, well, there was another bike, couple of bike riders, Neville Veal was one that, now lives in Launceston and another writer called Bob Panda they'd been in Europe before and they knew of Helen or knew Helen so anyway Helen came and picked me up and I stayed with her uh, and Kay and the two uh, Helen's two young kids two young girls for a day or two days and naturally you couldn't stay there so I just got the, the newspaper and just went through the paper all the time. And I, I'd already started to learn. I could speak a bit of French. And I already, already, I'd already started to try and learn Dutch. So Flemish or Bel- uh, the Belgian language, Flemish, is a dialect of Dutch. So, And the, the paper you're reading is in Flemish. In Flemish. Yeah. So I had three, three books with me. And uh, one book was called Hugo's, 
how to speak Dutch in three months, <laughs> a dictionary that translated from Dutch to English, and uh, another dictionary that translated from English back to Dutch. So I'd sit down and get the, just got the newspaper, and I knew immediately what the headline was, and it said, to her, which is T-E-H-W-R, and that means to hire. And they just had all this list, you know, one-bedroom apartments and blah, 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 blah. So I just looked through those. And if I didn't understand a word, I'd write it down and then I'd refer it to one of the others. And Hugo's, that book, Hugo's How to Speak Dutch in Three Months, was like a phrase, not so much like a phrase book, like not to say, how do you say good morning? It was like a children's book. And it was all in these sentences and paragraphs. And that's how I learnt to speak Dutch, which then with a dialect of Flemish. Anyway, the, uh, there was this uh, apartment uh, near the centre of Ghent. And I said, oh, well, well, I'll look at that. And at that time, there was a writer, uh, an Australian bike rider, Bill Laurie, that was living in London. And he wanted to come and race in Belgium. So I met Bill and we went to look at this apartment. And we said, yeah, this will do us, you know, because it was right on the tram line, because we didn't have a car or anything. All we had was a bag and a bike. So anyway, we got the apartment, which was unfurnished. So for about the first three to six months, Bill and I slept on the floor with a, an eider down and a pillow. <laughs> uh, we had, uh, in the apartment, there was the bedroom and there was a little front room and then there was a, a, a really squeezy out alley between the bedroom and the front room and that's where there was uh, a gas pipe. So we had two gas burners there and a big pot and it was a thing that we called Hashmagandhi. It was just everything went into the pot. <laughs> and uh, there was a, we were lucky, really, there was a toilet and a shower in the apartment too, which in Belgium is like a luxury, or it was then. And uh, so we slept on the floor and we had a knife, knife and fork each, a plate, and um, yeah, in effect that was about it. The heating... When what, we got to what the, time of year are we talking? When, when did you arrive? Well, that was the beginning. Uh, that would have been March 68. So it was really the start of the road season. And I'd had this really good form from Australia. So we naturally, what we've got to do is we've got to earn money because our money was starting to run out. So the Belgian races, what they call the Kermeses, they paid down to 30, 30th, and they had sprint preems as well. So they were more circuit races, but not like a criterium. They went 10K or 15K loops and all this sort of business. So they had these preem sprints every time you went past the finishing line, and they paid them on the day, right? If you, had a, you got a prize from 1 to 30, 
you had to wait till the end of the month for the Federation to clear the funds to send you the money. So Bill and I, we'd go to the race and we'd concentrate that we got one or two of these sprints early, so we ha at least we had some money. <laughs> uh, and then after, say, after halfway, if we'd got two or three of the, the things, then we'd ride for the what we call the classification from zero to 30 to get a prize. And uh, there was times we'd ride to the race, you know, 20, 30K, do the race 150 kilometres and then do the 20 or 30K back. It was, yeah, it was, um, what would you call it? Mind strengthening. Yeah, wow. So the, uh, the, when we got to the winter... My, I started to build a bit of a reputation. Even so, were, were you winning? We like to so say you say you yeah prizes. say you were coming off that good form out of Oz, and you'd come off that big season. Did it yeah. translate into Europe? Oh yeah, my word! Not winning, not winning because you see, very competitive in the fact of professional teams is if I get a contract, someone else misses out. So you'd go to one of these Kermeses and there'd be all the different riders from the different teams like Flandria and whatever, Maltini, whatever. And so a lot of the times, if you ever were in the front in breaks, breakaways, they'd make sure that you couldn't win because they knew that if you won, built your reputation, you might get the road contract and he's out, plus your... A foreigner, you're not yeah. a Belgian. So, but, you know, I was running prizes, been in breakaways, blah, blah, blah. So after three months, I managed to get a contract on the road with Flandria. Flandria, de Klerk-Kruger was my first contract. So I started to build the reputation, but then they, they understood that as well that I was a track rider and that, you know, I'd won six-day race in Australia and all this sort of stuff. So when we got to the winter, there was a, um, there was a, a promoter, a man called Charlie Rice, and he wanted to start a couple of six days up in Amsterdam and also in London for the first six days in London. And uh, Charlie Rice had been in Australia and he knew what I could do, and he also knew what Bill Laurie could do. He was a good rider, Bill. So Charlie said, Charlie Rice said to us, go to England, because that's going to be the first six in London. Go to England, and I'm putting on three Madisons over there. Um, one was in Hearn Hill, one was in Saffron Lane, and one was in Leicester, three. And he said because I want two or three poms, pommy blokes to ride in London for the crowd. He said, plus the fact, if you ride well enough, you know, maybe you can get a contract. So Bill and I a went... A track contract? Yeah, for the six-day race in London. So Bill and I, we had pretty good form. So when we went across there and we... we Creamed them. We won the three Madisons. 
So Charlie Rice said, right, you've got a contract for London, for the London Six. But that London Six was until September. So we were still, we went back to Belgium, still got a train, and we just, you know, living from, you know, from one day to another. Um, and then the winter hit, and that was the first time, that went first winter, like they talk about cold. <laughs> Go and live in Belgium, how cold it is in the winter. Like here's nothing. Um, Bill, uh, Bill and we couldn't afford what they called the mazout, which was a oil that you they put in the these heating bars in the apartments. We couldn't afford to put the heaters on. So, so even though you're getting this success and winning these races, you still didn't have surplus of cash to no. throw it. Not surplus cash. So then, because we were buying bike gear too, you know, tyres, wheels, and that was the days of all cobbles in Belgium, so you never come out of a bike race where the wheels weren't buckled or you broke a spoke or... Anyway, um, so what we'd do in the morning, well, we eventually got beds, which was great, but when we went to bed, we would have socks on, tracksuit, balaclava gloves um, just to just to go to sleep because it was that cold put the milk out on the <laughs> out on the ledge of the window and to keep that cold and all this sort of stuff i know this sounds real crybaby stuff but it it really wasn't if i had to do it again i would do it again and so we'd get up in the morning we'd have a bit of what we could eat, um, and that got better. Um, like, we even got down to horse meat at one stage. So, <laughs> so, um, so we, we would get up in the morning, we'd go and we'd do about 70 or 80k on the road, and sometimes that would be snow, light snow, drizzle, whatever. We'd get back to our little abode, um, we'd have a bit of a bit of a wash. We'd get some food, and we'd go downstairs about three doors along, and there was a laundrette. So all the machines, and so there's the warmth. So we'd go in there and have our lunch, and keep a bit warm. Then to the track in the Gensport Palais at about half past one, two, two hours training there behind motorbikes or whatever, and then come back and nearly every night or every second night we'd go to the movies, which would sit just down the road because the heaters were on and it was warm. So when we eventually got... See, and then the road races stopped, so we weren't getting sort of the income. So when um, the... Um, just before the London Six... We had, naturally, we had to get it go across, so we had this old Volkswagen. Um, so we had bikes stuck up on the roof of this old Volkswagen. <laughs> and then you didn't have... In those Volkswagens then, there wasn't a fuel gauge. There was a reserve tank. So you had a little lever down near the, uh, the brake pedal. So, and that had 10 litres of fuel in it. So when the, car, when the car started to splutter, you just turned the lever and you knew you had 10... 10 litres of fuel. When 
as true, true as I'm sitting here, when we got to London, I had in their money two and sixpence and we were on the reserve tank of fuel before the six started. So when you get into the six-day race, well, you've got the, you know, everything's paid. You, you know, you're eating and blah, blah, blah. So they, I think the riders then underestimated Bill and I a little bit because we were pretty skilled at riding Madison's in six days. Patrick Saku was racing and he was world sprint champion then. Uh, with another rider, Peter Peter Post, which who was the in effect then the king of the six day races. Uh, we getting we getting paid to show up to this race too. Yeah, three hundred pounds we got each to ride this, which was like a fortune. And and prize money if you won. Prize money if you won. So uh, Post and Saku, they were the you know the kingpins, but then there were some. Really good six-day riders there, Bugdale, Kemper, Siggy, heaps. Um, But they underestimated Bill and I, and we eventually finished third in that first six. We lost two laps, but we finished third. And they had a, um, like a sprint championship. Every night they had a 20-lap sprint at midnight, and uh, and then you got points for each night. By the end of the six-day race, I'd beaten Saku, who was then the world sprint champion, to win the BBC World of Sport trophy or whatever it was. So that really was a reputation. Then they looked at us in a different light. So when uh, near the end of the six-day races, all the managers come from all the other tracks like Berlin, Dortmund, Bremen, Copenhagen, Paris, the whole lot. They all come over to see who's riding well and for ongoing contracts. <clears throat> so there was a, uh, an old manager there. Uh, his name was Fonch Fischnick, and he was the manager of Reg and Strom Arnold. Now, I don't know if you would know them. They're people surely would, should know uh, uh, Reg Arnold and Alf Strom, they were fantastic bike riders. The first, they were the first Australian team really to dominate. They were fantastic riders. So anyway, Fonsfischnick and Reg, had, Reg and Alf had just retired. And Fonsfischnick said, I would like to be your manager. And I said, oh yeah, well fair enough, you know, but what's the conditions? And like Mr. 10%, he'd take 10% of every contract. And I said, well, that's fair enough as long as you keep putting the contracts up. <laughs> and he said, uh, well, I understand now you've beaten Saku, who was the world sprint champion, but is it right to say that you are also the Australian professional road champion? And I said, yes. And he said, right, I've got a contract for you next week in Ghent, in the, in the Sport Palais in Ghent. We're going to have an omnium for all the national champions of Europe and we want to include you because you're a national road champion. So after beating Saku, the world sprint champion, I go to Ghent and in this omnium with road riders is Eddie Merckx, 
the Belgium road champion Jada Rue, the the uh, Dutch champion um, Gimondi, the Italian champ, the, the, all of them, and they had four events. Now, for me, as an all rounder, they could sprint pursuit. You know, like an endurance rider, right up my alley. Plus, I had a lot more skill than those blokes, and I won that. So he. You beat them all. Beat them all. So there's. And where where was Merckx at this? Where was he? How old was he? And what time? What was uh, his timeline of his career? Merckx was world won the world road championship in 1967. So this is November 68. Wow. So. And with the with the rest of the guys like rock stars like oh crikey yeah and wealthy. Making yeah. heaps of money. Uh, yeah, but see, that, that, this is a little bit of a misnomer. Like, the only time cyclists ever got super rich was after Greg LeMond, the American, won the Tour de France. Okay. Even Eddie Merckx, when Eddie Merckx retired, he's the greatest bike rider that you would ever wish to see or ever will be. Uh, he still had to work. Saku still had to work. Jamondi. Um, I'm not saying they weren't comfortable. Sure, they're comfortable. But uh, when you retire in your 30s, you know, it's a long time before mm. you go in the plot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, and I'll touch on Greg Lamond in, in a, a little while. So, anyway, they... You won, you won the Omnium. Won the Omnium, yeah. Was that, especially with what you'd been through the last year, like, was that just the biggest thing that's ever oh. happened to you? Uh, oh, yeah. Like, were there points in that year where you're living in freezing cold Belgium, oh, off the smell of an oil rag, where you're like, how, well, how, how much longer do I really want to do this for? Yeah, but the reason, the reason why, how long I couldn't do this for, I didn't have a return trip. And you didn't have any money to get home. No way. I would have had to go, I would have had to have gone to England and then worked somewhere in a bar, I don't know, somewhere to get some money to get back home. I, I yeah. didn't have the money to get back home. So, you know, and by doing that, then you start to get more contracts. And then... You know, the more contracts means um, in some regards a harder life because you've got to perform all the time. You can't, you know, you can't turn around and say, oh, I'll rest on my laurels now for a couple of months because I beat these blokes because all of a sudden you start to slip and there's about 10 behind you that want the same contract. Yeah. So you've got to keep, keep performing. <clears throat> and that's um, – but then when you do you... that, you get an acceptance as well. Okay. All of a sudden, you're not that, you know, snot nose <laughs> trying, to, trying to break into everything. You're, in effect, one of us. But really, you're from the other side of the world, so we don't really know how to handle you. See, when – and then those years, after 68 – for about the next five years, 
I was the only English-speaking bike rider that rode six-day races. And they were the pinnacle? They were the pinnacle then. Yeah. Yeah, 17 sixes in a year. 17 six-day races. And and so how, how much racing are you doing in that in that six-day block? Like, what's the... What's the amount of racing that you're actually doing? Um, when I... First six-day races I was in Europe in those years were 24 hours a day. So you, you had your How did par- that work? You had your partner. So what would happen... Were you, were you getting new... Were you still with your original partner? Were you changing... I rode, rode two or three with Bill, Bill Laurie. And then what used to happen would... They, they used to have this term called the local matador. So say you'd go to Amsterdam and they'd have this sort of an up-and-coming up rider or a good road rider. Like as an example of, people wouldn't know, but the name Joe DeRue, terrific bike rider, road rider. So then the, the, the directors of the track would say, you're a good track rider. I want you to ride with Joe DeRue because he's going to be popular because he's Dutch and we're in Amsterdam. Um, so I want him up there, you know, with on equal, one lap behind, blah, blah, blah. So you got a little bit of a, yeah, you got to ride with him, then you got to ride with him, then you got to ride with him. Because there wasn't another Australian. Yeah. You see, in later years, you had Danny Clark with a Don Allen that rode a lot of the six-day races together because there were two Australians. So I raced a lot with the Germans, and I won uh, all the, all the six-day races that I won or were, you know, second and thirds and whatever with Germans. And that was a lot of that local matador stuff. Um, and they paid extra. Like, you know, you turn around and say, well, you want me to ride with Joe DeRue? Well, I've got to carry him on my back for a while. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, the uh, 24 hours a day, just we'll take it as a day, Right. 12 o'clock midday, uh, 10 sprints, right? So then there'd be 10 sprints and then probably in the afternoon there might be an hour Madison, uh, some Derny races, which are motorbikes, motor, motor pace. Then you'd get to, to about 5 o'clock in the afternoon and your partner would go down and have something to eat in, a, in the kitchen because there was always... And this is internal in the velodromes. You never got out of them. In a packed Belgium velodrome, yep. people Everyone everywhere. Smoking cigars and yeah. God knows whatever else. But not so much packed in the afternoons, but enough people. So at five o'clock, your partner would go down and have a, something to eat and you'd be on the track. Then he would come up and then you would go down and have your meal. Then you would go back on the track and he would go down for a massage. Then he would come up. Then I would go down for a massage. Then at 7 o'clock at night, all the people start coming in. And, uh, yeah, then it's sort of hell for leather. Like <laughs> you might have, like a Madison might last two, three hours and then you've got a lull. And then 
you'd get to about midnight and a lot of the people then would start to drift away, particularly in the, say, the Monday, Tuesday, Wednesdays, early part of the week. They would, they'd start to drift away. So then you could put your head down for a while, you know. So you had those cabins on the track. Mm. So you could, and we, we had a, uh, used to have an egg timer. So you'd come down and lay down and put a blanket over you, put the egg timer on for an hour or whatever. As soon as that went ding, well, you got up and then your partner come and had a bit of a rest. When you got to about four o'clock in the morning, you then could sort of get, you know, hour and a half, two hours sleep. So you get always getting this broken sleep, broken sleep. And then about five o'clock in the morning, uh, particularly in Germany, uh, some of the um, street walkers would walk in because they've been cold all night mm. and the taxi drivers and they'd come in and we'd be just, you know, one sleeping, one riding slowly on the bottom of the track and then you, maybe you'd get a, particularly in Germany, maybe you'd get a taxi driver say, I'll give 10 German marks for the next sprint. So then the director of the track would say, right, everyone up on the, up on the track. So then you'd, you'd do that. So you would having these hour, two hours snatches of sleep. I wrote about four, four five of those. And then they changed the format um, and they said, right, now we're riding, you can ride 18 hours a day, right? Isn't that going to be fantastic? <laughs> 18 hours uh, a day. Treat yourself to a few hours sleep. That's right. 18 hours a day you can ride. But a six day, a six day is 144 hours. So they used to have always a clock in the velodrome, not, not just for the time, but the hours. So 144 and if, when you rode it, 143 it'd come up, blah, blah. So they said to make that up for you to be on the track, this is Germany, they said you've got to ride seven nights. So you can have 18 hours a day, but you've got to ride an extra night, so it'll give you the 144. And the German press, they wrote up and said, oh, in the papers, it's not six-day racing anymore because they're not riding 24 hours a day. So when you got to six o'clock in the morning, there used to be sometimes five sprints, sometimes ten sprints. So on, say, Monday night, I'd say to my partner, I'll do the sprints. At six o'clock, you go to bed. So off he'd go and he'd have a wash and then straight into bed because you could, there was, not only in the track was the little cabins, but it's still in the complex was sleeping rooms. So you could go and sleep. So he'd go, I'd do the five sprints. By the time I finished, had a wash, maybe something to eat, be seven o'clock. Go to bed, or put your head down and you're out like a light. And then at about half past 11, which is only, what, three and a half, four hours, you'd have one of your masseurs or whatever, you're shaking, you like that, for you to get back on the track for the sprints at midday. Why, why were they so obsessed with this 24, like it had to be 24 hours? <coughs> because... Where the term Madison comes from, 
is Madison Square Gardens in America. And the French call a Madison, which is the team's race, mm. uh, Les Américains, which is American. And it's all hinges back to Madison Square Garden. The original six-day races in Madison Square Garden back in the late 1800s were one rider, singular, riding six days. No sleep. No sleep. <laughs> if you wanted to sleep, you laid down and you lost laps. Bang, 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 bang. And then probably the leader, after the second day, he might get tired. So he could just get off, right, and then they'd get their laps back. So that's how, that's how it worked. And then the New York Health Department stepped in and said, this is unhumane. Like, it just can't, just can't keep doing this. And that's when they transferred from singular to teams event. And that's why they call it the Madison, Madison Square Gardens. There you go. And that was 24 hours. But then it just evolved over time because some of the races, the earlier 24 hours, say, in, in the USA or in, in New York, <clears throat> when they got to midnight and there was no people there, well, then they could get a longer sleep period as long as one rider stayed on the track. So that's... And now... Um, yeah, then over the years, progressively over the years, they shortened everything up. Now they don't race in the day and they race from 7 o'clock till 1 o'clock in the morning or whatever yeah. and have all these different events. And was yeah. it like a big party? Like when it was going, prime time, everyone was there? Yeah, particularly Germany, like drunk out of their minds. <laughs> oh. And betting, like everyone oh, was punting? Yeah, crikey's here. Yeah. And, uh, you know, just the music and the dancing and, you know, <laughs> it was, you looked at it sometimes and say it's mayhem. But then when the really important races were on in, that, in, the, in those velodromes then, they'd put everything dark except the lights over the track. So then it was really concentrated on, you know, on the, on the sport, on the bike riders. Yeah. Were you, like, famous at that point throughout the European continent? Oh, it's, yeah, I would have said so, yeah. Well, I was European Omnium champion and in 1973, 74, 75, I was ranked number one in the world as a six-day rider. Which was equivalent to being the best rider in the world. Best rider in the world. Because then, you see, the world championships now... There's 22 world champions. Right, they've just had the world championship in yeah. Rabay. And there was 22 world champions. Back in my day, there was three track champions and one road champion. On the track was sprint, pursuit and the big motor pace. And then the road rider. So there was only four. So what they used to do then... They used to have, well, I suppose a little bit like Formula One is now. You know, the points yeah. through the year and then that you're crowned then, you know, number one mm. or number one in the world or whatever. Yeah, Yeah. Well, well, I think, and I think that's part of why Formula One's so successful is because they've still got that. Like you can still 
it's such a weird thing to explain to someone that's new to cycling. Like, well, there's no real like best rider in the world. It's just well, this no, person's not. good at this and this person's good at this and yada yada yada. Yeah, yeah, in their discipline. Yeah, probably the only true one is the road rider. Who wins the Tour de France? I'd say so. Because mm. they used to have a a, a a trophy, and I I've never seen it in recent years, and they called it the Perno Trophy, P E R N O D, Perno Trophy, and that was <clears throat> that was an amalgamation of points for every um, level one race in the world. So. Uh, you know, like Paris Bay, Tour of Flanders, Tour of Romandie, Tour of Swiss, Tour de France, Tour of Spain, and whoever whoever accumulated the most points out of probably twenty or thirty races ended up being number one. And they don't seem to have that anymore. Mm. So, in your life at this time, it was you live in a a good, fun, enjoyable lifestyle? Like we, we live in the dream? Personally, yes. Because, you know, that was my ambition. That's what I wanted to do. And that was, to, you know, to be the best I possibly could. But the sacrifices of the family is a different kettle of fish. Mm. You know, like... Um, Kay and I were married in in Belgium, and three of our four children were born in Belgium. But it it was a lonely life for Kay, um, because I was away so much. Like in the winter time, there was blocks where I'd be away for three months, um, and there was times when six day races ran straight after one another. So you never got a chance. There, were, there was times... I'll just give you an example. Um, and this, this, this has never been done, wasn't, had never been done before and, never, and it hasn't been done since because they don't have the six-day races that we've got. <laughs> but in um, Munich, and this would have been in this 1973, in Munich... I raced a six-day race with a rider called Siggy Renz, who was from Munich, and we won. The six-day race finished at midnight, and then you didn't catch planes then. You drove in the middle of winter. So we finished at 12. I, the mechanic packed all my bikes up, put it in the car, and we got away, I don't know, maybe half past one. We drove 1,200 kilometres through the night to Ghent, home track to Ghent. We got there at about, uh, if I can recall, about one o'clock in the afternoon. Drove to my place. I dropped the dirty washing off from (laughs) Munich and Kay had my bags packed for Ghent, six. And then I drove straight to the track in Ghent, had the massages, blah, blah. Started the six-day race that night with Julian Stevens, a Belgian, and we won. 
we won that. Uh, finished at midnight. Kay had my other bags ready. Back in the car, drove 1,200 kilometres back to Zurich in Switzerland. And I raced in uh, Switzerland with a rider called Klaus Bugdahl. And we won that. So three weeks, three different partners, three wins. And every six-day race, there were, it totaled... Oh, well, Zurich was more. Zurich was about 3,600k. The race was. And the other sixes would be about the 3,000. So you're talking... Yeah. Massive Ten, mileage. 10,000k, yeah. Well, like, how did you get so good? How, how did, like... <laughs> I think... Because it's not like... We're talking about four winning races in Lon- in Lonnie and Tassie and then the next level to to go nationally and then to go to the world world level and establish yourself in that. I imagine it was a pretty insular European cycling just, scene. Yep. That's amazing. Yeah, but... But not at the time. And I'm not being flippant about that. Not at the time. That That was... You know, that's, that, that was my... Then it was my career. You know, it was my job. You know, just like turning up at the office nine to five. You know, I've got to be there. So, <laughs> yeah, you know, like... you know, People are not supermen. So, you know, their cracks do appear. Like, But when I get in the car with to drive back from, say, Munich to Ghent, were like 1200 k's i'll drive for a while because the adrenaline and everything's still going after the six day race which you've just won so you drive for a little while then i i would just put the recliner back and boom and the mechanic would drive the rest so you were getting you know i wasn't there behind the wheel sort of slaving away and then you get to the track and you know you start again yeah Plus, those six-day races then were, they weren't 24 hours. They were this 18 hours, sort of 12, like Ghent was, Ghent was a 12-hour-a-day, a six-day race. So, you know, after you've ridden the longer ones and you get to 12 hours, you think, this is all right. Mm. So you're getting a rest, yeah. Where was Merckx at this point? Uh, Merckx... In, like, you talk about, <laughs> he's a, he was an astronaut. <laughs> <laughs> he, uh, yeah, a man from a different planet, I think. But Merckx, Merckx would ride the road races and then he'd ride four or five of the six-day races prior to, prior to Christmas and then he'd have a break and then, then he'd ride in, say, around February, he might ride two six-day races then just to get condition for the road. Um, when you talk about Merckx, you know, like one year he won 58 road races. Come on. Like 58 road races. One year he wins the Tour of Italy, the Tour de France and the World Road Championship. Like, 
and he wins in February and he was winning in November. It, like, just unbelievable. But the workload he would put in, you know, like his training and, like, un just unbelievable stuff. Do a road race of 200k and then, you know, I made a pace back to Brussels 100k. You know, like, he, yeah, he was just a man, just a man of steel. And when you look at him, even the bike riders then, like, say two that really stand out to me is Saku, Patrick Saku. He'd be the greatest track rider that ever, and Merck's the greatest rider ever, but road rider in particular. Um, the How dedicated and everything they were to cycling and, you know, like... Merck's, Saku lived like a monk, but Merck's didn't. Merck's, he used to, you know, have a few drinks and all this sort of stuff. But when you sat down and talked to them, it's like you and I now talking, you know, but they talk about other things, you know, football and blah, blah, blah. But their conversation flow is normal. It's like, you know, we're mates. And it's not because you're a good rider or whatever, it's because, you know, you're an interesting person. Um, I always, people say to me at different times, oh, what do you think of Merckx? What, what was Merckx like? And I just said to him, uh, said to people, Roger, Roger Federer to tennis is what Merckx is to cycling. Like, Federer to me is the epitome of a sportsman mm. like he's terrific he doesn't have to stand on a pedal and you know say how great he was he's a normal bloke treats everyone how they should be treated and Merckx and Saku were like that it's just their yeah their attitude but <laughs> Yeah, when they put their leg over a bike, it was probably a different, different scenario. And was like, was the racing savage? Like you took, we look at racing now, and it's it's all regulated, and there's rules, and everyone kind of has has their fair go. Was it savage in terms of the way people went about winning races? Oh yeah, 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 really savage. You'd it was yeah. You don't. You didn't give a quarter. You know there was no, no softly, softly. It was. I'm not. I'm not saying that. You know you deliberately. You know run into someone, knock him off, or whatever. I'm not saying that at all. But. Uh, it, cycling back then, isn't as clinical as it is today. Like, if you wanted wanted to move your position up and, uh, well, there's no room or just enough room to get your handlebars in. Well, you put your handlebars in and you pushed in. Whereas now, <gasps> you can't do that. <laughs> you know, on the track, you can't, like if someone's attempting to pass you, you can't sort of impede their progress. It's got to be all straight line stuff. And one of the prime examples is the, the Kieran now, you know, that, sprint match virtually mm. behind the motorbike whereas before 
you could push and shove to get a good position. Well, now you've got to start and whatever position you're in, you've got to stay in. And I just think it's a little bit too sanitised, mm. stuff like that. I uh, And in the, like in the six days, was there mutual respect between everyone or was it still just on... No, I think mutual respect is the, probably the clincher. The, the, there was a, there's a term. There was a term in the six-day races when I was there. And it was, there was, it was the blue train, they called it. Or in French, le train bleu. And that, that name comes from the fact that in Paris, and this is years ago, in Paris on a Friday night... There used to be a special blue train that took all the hierarchy and the well-to-do from Paris to Nice and the, the Côte d'Azur down in the south. And they'd go there on the Friday night and on the Sunday night it'd come back and the train was blue. So it was for the elite. <coughs> in the six-day races, there was the term called the blue train. And the blue train consisted of well, in my time, the five best teams. So that was the likes of, like, you know, Saku, Merckx, Bugdale, Renz, um, Kemper, myself, Leo Dindam, Rennie Payne, and those type of riders. And we rode nearly all the six-day races. So if we were at one another's throats all the time, you know, it just doesn't work mm. because the thing is as well you've got to provide entertainment for the for the people that come in the spectators and that's what the directors of the tracks and that want too that's not saying that oh it's your turn to win that's not saying that at all what it means is that i am aware of what you do so there might be a, a time in the madison where at an opportune time, say we'll take, use the name Saku, he attacks to take a lap and I'm out of position or whatever, so I look at it in the fact that I won't make position to chase him or go with him because, and then he'll take his lap because then I know that when I go to take mine, he's going to do the same for me. So... That blue train, these 10-odd riders, are always there within this one lap, two laps, three lap. Yeah. So it's, like you mentioned, mutual respect. The riders underneath there, the blue train, those four or five really good teams, would just make the tempo so hard that they couldn't take a lap. So it was... a. A bit of a closed thing, yeah. but it wasn't you win today and I'll win tomorrow. It wasn't like that. It yeah. was at the end of the week, it was the strongest one still won. But you didn't, yeah, sort of impede, you know. If he was riding really well, you wouldn't impede him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, wow. Mm. When, um, so when did it start to, when did you retire? How did you get to that, to that point? Uh, what really, what really was the cat- catalyst, I suppose, because I raced road and track 
for nearly all those years. The only time when I would rest would when, when the big tours were on, like Tour de France, um, Tour of Italy or whatever, because my, in effect, my build is more of a block. I, I could climb, but I couldn't climb like that. So my races were more aligned to classic, semi-classics, uh, shorter tours like Paris-Nice, <coughs> and so I, I would have a, a bit of a rest in around those tours. I'd still race in Belgium, but I'd have a bit of a rest there. Um, in Paris-Nice, uh, uh, what would year would that be? Probably 76, I think. 1976, I was riding for the Belgian team, Icebalker, Icebalker Colnago. And on the last day, there was... Um, there was two mountains, but they weren't big. But there was two mountains, and the la and we finished in Nice on the Promenade des Anglais. Um, I thought, because uh, and Milan San Remo started about five days later, and I thought I'm sort of going pretty well here. I might have a good crack at this last this last stage. I got blown away on Montfond too. <laughs> Lost a, lost a few minutes there. So in Paris-Nice, there's a, a mountain called the Col de Tanneron, which is just right near the Promenade des Anglais. And I punctured going up it, and the team car was virtually straight behind me. So I stopped, he changed the wheel, and one of my teammates, Willie Interven was his name, he waited, waited for me. And we went over the top of the mountain and there was a really windy descent. And P Paris-Nice is in the beginning of the year and there was ice on the road on this real, on a, a bend. So Willie Intervent couldn't keep up with me on, on the descent because I was trying hard to get back. And anyway, I went into this corner and hit the ice and just slid straight across the road. And I opened my leg from my knee to my hip. And eventually, uh, they showed later that I chipped some bones in the top of my leg. When I finished sliding, I got up, straightened the handlebars and got back on the bike as Rick Van Loy was the, the director of the team then, and he gave me the push in the back. With your leg white, like... Yeah. I, well, I didn't know. I didn't feel it. And Intven went past me. I caught Intven. We caught the bunch at the bottom of the mountain, and as we swung on to the uh, Promenade des Anglais, which is right on the Riviera, and... Uh, this a bloke called Ray, Raymond Delille and a Spanish rider, Peruana, were away. Two of them were away. And I won the bunch sprint for third. And then, <laughs> then I looked at, looked at my leg and uh, said, wow. So anyway, <laughs> we went, uh, went to the hospital and what they did 
it was, it was like a big gouge. They they didn't didn't stitch it. They pulled it together and taped it, and then bandaged it. I rode Milan San Remo five days after. Then when I went back to Belgium, at X-rays and I had had these chips, bone chips, off my hip, and I reckon it took me about six months then to get right. Um, so then we were heading into the, the six-day season. And, Alex, to be quite honest, you know, I'd kicked a few heads on the way up and I didn't want the kicks coming back down because I was, I was floundering a bit with my, with my leg. In actual fact, it displaced my kneecap as well. So I ended up here oh, a few... Get, a few few years ago now having a double knee replacement and a lot of it was from the osteoarthritis so that's what finished me mm-hmm. was the fact and I'd by then I'd really I think I'd really had enough how, how old were you at this time uh, I was nearly 34 it's a solid career sorry so yeah like a long career too yeah we'll turn pro at 15 so, I'm, I know professionals in Australia is not the same as professionals in being a professional in Europe, but in relative terms, professionalism in Australia then was very, very strong. Mm. Like Sid Patterson, four times world champion. Yeah. You know, and we're racing all these internationals. So, in, in that sense of longevity, yeah, we could say 15 through to 34. Did um, on the road itself, like speaking of like Milan San Remo, did those kind of races suit you? Uh, not so, not so much. Like, were um, you a road sprinter as such? Like when you were, um, yeah, I suppose what they what would they they term me a ruler more? Yeah. I had a lot of endurance, like speed and endurance, but. You could have the real absolute top road sprinters then, like Eric LeMann, um, yeah, like Van Loy. They're, they're bloody unbeatable, like to try and beat them. But if it was an, a near enough smaller type group and it was hard, a hard race, yeah. Yeah. Um, but to say, yeah, super sprinter on road, mm. No, no. I liked it a bit more harder. I like Belgium. You know, wind, rain, cobbles. <laughs> <laughs> at, like, you just you sound like the hardest man on earth at this, oh, at this no. time. <laughs> no, far from that. But, yeah, but at the same at the same time, when you when you're finishing races with your leg cut open, yeah, do, doing all this stuff, racing on the track in ridiculous. Like in today's terms, like doing that kind of race schedule is wild to think about. Like, does it was that just normal, or was we? Did you think you had extra grit than others, or like what? What was it? No, no. I reckon I'd be one of many in in those eras. I'd be one of many. Um, probably in the end, like particularly on the track, I'd say I had more skill. Than 
probably all, maybe, mm-hmm. more skill. So I knew, knew where to be. And, I, I, I'm, and I've quite often said it when I've c- coached people, and it, particularly Matt, my son, you know, there's two things I've always emphasised. You've got to be a racer, not a chaser. You know, so you put it all on the line. Every chance you get, you put it on the line. And maybe nine times out of ten you get beat, but the other time you're going to win. So that's 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 a prime, you know, one of the prime things. You've got to be a racer, not a chaser. And, uh, you know, I think that really stands in good stead because you've got to have that mental... You've got to have that... Yeah, that mental strength, that mental that mental edge, I suppose, is what you call it. And I think a lot of riders now, um, they don't just don't race enough. Mm. They don't get that, and you touched on it before, hardness. You know, you, you do, you've got to be hard. You've got to, like, you tack once and pull back. You tack twice and pulled back, tacked th- three times and be pulled back. You know, eventually, someone something's going to give, either you or them chasing you, yeah. which is true. So, you know, I think you just got to, yeah, perseverance, race, race as much as you can and get as hard, you know, get hard. And do you do that via, like, how do you... How do you build that mental strength? Like your, your story has just time and time again, this is like this really challenging mental scenarios, whether it's junior racing into the army, into Belgium, like it's massive jumps. Yeah, but I like the time you don't, I, you know, I don't, and I, even now I don't look back and say, because I know there's bike riders Crockies, a lot harder than me that raced. You know, like people that Australians really don't know, don't understand. They don't know what these people went through. Like, you know, Rick Van Loy, Rick Van Steenbergen, Rick Scott, Freddie Martins, uh, uh, heaps. And they what? They're hard nuts. <laughs> Johan Museu, like, you know, like. His fall in in Paris-Roubaix, Johan Museu, when he split his kneecap open, like, and he ends up and he wins, and then they're talking about two weeks later about cutting his leg off, amputation, because of the infection he got, you know, and he recovered from that, and then he wins Paris-Roubaix again. Like, you know, that's that's tough. That's hard. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I it's, that it's so hard. and I think a lot of it a lot of it is a lot of it is um yeah you never never know unless you go and there's a lot of bike riders that say I wish I had a gone I wish I had a done that I wish I wish well you know you you got to you got to try mm. and you know it is a it is a challenge. It is a challenge. You know, even now, like, um, this might sound a real criticism, but it's not because it's the environment. I, I liken now um, Australian teams, as an example, when they go to race in Europe, 
and this includes the likes of um, now the protein bike exchange. Mm. They never ever they never ever really leave Australia, and the reason why I say that is, if they're an international team or say bike exchange, they train and race here together. They get on the plane together. They go to Europe together. They go to the accommodation together. They go to the bike race together. They come home from the bike race. And it's just get back on the plane and come home. It's, I think a lot of the bike riders now lack a little bit of that hardness. You know, like you look at the recent Olympics and even the, the recent World Championships, the riders that won the gold medals, you know, like, like Morkoff and Garner, they rode the Tour of Italy. Morkoff, the lead-out man for Cavendish in the Tour de France. Yeah, and he goes, three weeks ago, three weeks before the actual race itself. They're hard, hard men. So when they get in a race like an endurance race, like a Madison or whatever, they can just keep going. Mm. Whereas... I seem to suggest our our people are a little bit. I don't know. It's the environment. Well, we weren't. They're we just went, not hard enough. If you have racing at one end of the scale and science and specific training at the other, we're down this end, and yep. the Euros are down the racing end. And they are. You look at the results. That's that's the one. That's again, the racing, the racing, and. The other thing which, you know, I did instill in Matt as well was the fact of instinct. When you've, when you've learnt to race and you do race, you get a sense of instinct to me and the instinct means, right, I'm in a scratch race or whatever, can be anywhere and it might be 300 metres to go, could be 500 metres to go. But if your instinct, you feel, now is the time, you've got to go. You don't wait. You don't wait, oh, I've got to wait for that last 200 metres. Too late. Too late. You, bre- you, you, you develop and evolve an instinct to race. And, and I think it puts them in good stead. Like Matt, <laughs> I'd say, Matt, there's a bike rider that give... Not 100%. He was always 110. He he was always over the border, over the border, Matt. And I, you know, and I, I and that's the European way to me. And if you if you if like you make a reference to, yeah, it's tough and it's all that. Yeah, well, I think it's it's the matter of how you race. You know, you got to be race. You got to be hard. You got to have instinct. You got to have skill. And you talk about you know, sports science as opposed to racing. Well, it's a combination of both. So you can't go overboard with one, you know, which I seem to think we may have in Australia. Yeah. When, um, when Matt started to show interest in cycling and really get into the sport, like how did you go about coaching him? How did you go about mentoring him and making sure that, yeah, he reached the, the highs that he did in the end? He said... Uh, Matt said to me quite often, because I said to Matt, you're not racing until you're about 14. And he said, but you started, you were racing when you were 10. So 
we developed Matt, uh, and my father was still riding his bike then. My father would be, would have been the first one to take Matt out the road. So Matt, uh, we developed Matt over that two or three years, plus the fact, you know, we'd sit around the table and have a meal and we talk cycling. So it's it's in how how do you say it? Yeah, it's not not that it's not that it's there every minute of the day, but the cycling sort of um, yeah, heritage and that yeah, I think it breeds. Hmm. So the the and then the fact of him when he first started riding was I never ever really said said to Matt except for the some of the training stuff. Because when you're young, you're, they're fit anyway. So you don't have to flog them. So, you know, you just got to say you've got to take your time and, and uh, you know, because they're running around kicking footballs and and he mate played, you know, a multitude of sports before. But then when he started to race, I never ever sat down with Matt and said, now in this race you've got to do this and get up the front and blah, blah and watch him and do this. He just raced. And I said, when you feel like you can got to go, doesn't matter, you go. So, again, breeding this, the instinct, it was the after that was the important. So after the race, you sat down and you said, when they cooled off a bit or whatever, now, what did you think of that race? You know, what do you think you could have done better? You know, tell me about the race. How did you feel? So then you got this conversation backwards and forwards and you get to a stage of saying, like Matt said, oh, you know, I would be too hard on the wheel. And I'd say, yeah, well, you've learnt that now. Before you ever try to pass somebody, you can't be really hard on the wheel and attempt to pass him. You've got to give him a bit of air and then make a run at him. So, you know, just small things like that. But that's after the event. Because I do see, when I go to bike races now, uh, coaches or parents or whatever, and they've got a poor little kid sitting there and they're giving him that many instructions, his head must be buzzing. And all the little kid's thinking about having an ice cream after his race. Well, good on him, you know, as long as he's racing. Yeah. Um, And then naturally as you step up, well, then, then it becomes more well, you know, you've got to be careful of this and you've got to do that. So then the experience does come into it. But I reckon you do, you, you do have to self-learn and be extremely strong on basics. You know, like, to be a bike rider, well, you know, there's a bike, it's got pedals and you get on and you push it. I know that sounds flippant, but it's basic. You know... Everything else can come on board, you know, power, wattage and blah, blah. But eventually that's what happens. The absolute basics of that. You know, there's the bike. Yeah. These are my legs and I clip in and I push it as hard as I can. And that's where I talk about instinct again, instinct. And that needs to be bred into our bike riders. Yeah. When you feel it, you go. You don't say... Ooh, this is going to hurt. 
<laughs> well, and is that is that is that did that come from your Belgian racing? You look at like the Van der Poels and Van Arts and the way that they're going about revolutionising the way that yeah. road pros go about their racing. That's right. It's that same deal. Van der Poel's going from sixty odd k to go. It makes no sense at all. No, but it works. But it works. That's right. Again, it comes down to that that instinct. You see the, the and I, you know, I might be. And people might say to me, oh, you're old school and that was the olden days. But I'm a great advocate of the fact that they should not have earpieces. Yeah. Leave it, you know, they can have wattage, they can have all that, no earpieces. Because then, you know, they're sitting back in the car and they're really, the boat riders are like robots. Mm-hmm. And the best races that you see are the ones, in my opinion where they race without earpieces. Because you do get a van to pull that 60k to go is going to go up the road. Yeah. Rather than then some back, someone back in the car saying, right, everyone up the front now and we've got to chase him and you've got to ride at 50k's an hour or your watch's got to be 400. I, yeah. Oh, I don't, oh, yeah, I don't know. Maybe I am too old. <laughs> <laughs> the One last question. The So when you turn pro... Um, like, were your parents just amazed at what you were doing? They were back here in Launceston. Yep. You were over there crushing the European scene. Yeah, well, see, well, you know, you're talking back in the 60s. Like, the only correspondence you had was aerograms. Like were, you mate, were you making the examiner? Like, was it? Oh, yeah, yeah. being be yeah. the examiner. Yeah. 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 Uh, the, the paper that used to do the most on European cycling when I was over there racing was the age in Melbourne. Yeah. Because they used to have an age that would, would come out in the evening, <clears throat> the evening age, and that used to normally always have cycling in it. And then there was a journalist here in Launceston, Jack Donnelly, and he was very cycling-focused. Um, and he, he uh, yeah, he really built a good legacy of cycling even before my era, back in, you know, the Max Sloans and, and that, that, those days. So he would take a lot of that, that information. But not like, not like today. See, we corresponded like, to my mother and father with an aerogram. Um, we'd probably ring once in a year, and that'd be at Christmas time. You, and you'd have to book it. You know, you'd have to say, well, I want to ring Australia and it's got to be at midnight on that day and that's all you could have and, and it cost you a bloody fortune. <laughs> you, uh, you also, the other thing I was going to ask you about, you also mentioned how Greg LeMond revolutionised the <coughs> financial element yeah. of cycling. What happened there? Well, LeMond, um, he, the, he won the Tour de France. I think it was with a French team, Le Vie Claire. And he went back to America and because he'd won the biggest cycling race in the world, the Americans really jumped on the fact that here we've got an American that's won the Tour de France. Because as we know, you know, they're mad with gridiron, baseball, blah, blah. So when Le Mans went back, they said to, or the general public the whole lot and then the major sponsors come 
that were in baseball and, um, and gridiron, and they said to Le Monde, we'd like to sponsor an American team, um, and I think it was Motorola, um, for you to win the Tour de France again. And so what would that entail? Now, Le Monde was smart enough to turn around and say, oh, well, you know, my contract's two million. And he was probably on, I don't know, 200,000. And plus, if you want me to win, I need a team. So I want this rider, that rider, this rider, that rider, that rider. So Motorola and the other sponsors, they said, right, we'll... Cause you know, for them, the amount of money that Le Mans was talking was virtually one player in the NBA. So they then went about getting this team built around Le Mans for the Tour de France. So Le Mans got his, say, two million, and then all these other riders, Le Mans had worded up and said, you know, open your mouth for a good contract. So Le Mans then got some really strong bike riders going to his team. So the other European teams then thought, hang on, what's happening here? We're losing all our bike riders. So then other sponsors come in. That's why now you see, um, you know, bike jerseys with about 15 sponsors. <laughs> so because they, they had, had the drag in the up. money, had the drag in the money to, um, to keep their best cyclists. Yeah. You know, like you as a... Melbourne supporter, you'd want to keep a tracker. Yeah. So <laughs> you'd get a heap of sponsors to keep it. So that elevated not only the Le Monde and the, that, that team, but all the other European teams. So therefore the salaries went up and up and up. Yeah. So that's why they're, like I think uh, Pogacar this year is on 12 million euro. It's a lot of money. That's why he doesn't have to race like Merckx does. Yeah. Or did. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. Mm. Graham, that was, that was awesome. <laughs> that was really good. Thank you very much. No, for thank you, story. Alex, for the time. Um, and, yeah, I hope we can – yeah, I'm looking forward to also talking to you after this and just saying, well, who else do I need to talk to? Who else do I need to find? Um, and, yeah, because there is so many – Australian oh, there cycling is. stories out there. Yeah, well... And eventually I, I'll get to Matt. Eventually you Eventually get I'll get to Matt. <laughs> yeah, sometimes he's hard to get to talk yeah. to. Uh, no, I'll have a good think. I'll awesome. have a good think for you and let you know. Thanks, Graham. Who can talk. Yeah. Yeah, and tell, tell stories. Tell <laughs> stories all day. <laughs> okay. Thank you very much. Righto. Thanks, mate.